Welcome to Marketing Money Podcast. Roll it! Welcome to the Marketing Money Podcast. We are here live, but recorded to you, but live from Nashville, Tennessee at the ABA Community Bank National Conference. I'm here with the main marketing man, Mr. Josh Mabus. I put the BA in ABA. He does, and whatever that means, I am John Oxford with Renaissance Corporation Renaissance Bank, and we are recording to let you know what you missed if you didn't attend. You're missing it, guys. Um, this is, if you're a banker and you're not at this conference or you don't have plans to be here, that means um, somebody else took that privilege within your office probably, and um, it's here in your stead. But I would uh, encourage you to fight your way to this conference. Excellent um, tactical uh, information gathering conference. So we are in the vendor space area, the expo, whatever you want to call it. And there, I'm looking at probably 500 different vendors around here, and it's it's happening. A lot going on. A lot going on, a lot of great services, um, everything from um, core processors to digital signage. All right, we are here with Julie from Reading Bank, Reading Co-op Bank. Pronounce it for me so I don't get it wrong. Reading Cooperative Bank. There you go. And Josh? In Reading, Fire- Massachusetts, I just found out. So uh, you ever met David Ortiz? I haven't, not personally. But are you a fan? Absolutely. Yeah, good, good end of the careers. So, I mean, it was a great season, not so good end of season, but yeah, a great, but great, a great way to end up. I'm a Giants fan, so I can't be congratulatory to any AL team nor the Boston Red Sox specifically. But David Ortiz is a great guy. Well, let's talk about Tom Brady, TB12. Uh, yeah, Tom. Um, <laughs> I'm more of a Peyton Manning guy, but but that's okay. But he's retired now. That's so. true. That's true. Tom, you know, open your Tom mind. is back with a vengeance. Yeah, he, he set that's, out and he's he's ready to go. So he's getting Gronk with MVP. It. He may be with <laughs> playing 12 games. He may be MVP. <laughs> he could be MVP playing three games. All right, let's talk a little bit about banking, ABA conference. Tell us about your story, why you're here, what's going on with you. Oh, well, I'm um, actually a member of the board of directors, and um, and as far as ABA is concerned and and this convention, um, it's where we always find new technologies, new innovations, what's happening. What I really like this time is the ABA has actually brought some really early developers, some fintech um, entrepreneurs, some new kids to the block, some young people and some young energy. there's so much disruption going on right now. I think we really need to you know, be focused on what's really going to happen in banking over the next 10 years. And I think this is where we're going to see it. So from, from what you can share with us, without letting out too much in the competitive marketplace, this will be broadcast on the ABA site. Um, what, where's the focus of, of your bank? Uh, what, what are you, what's, I guess, a worry or really a concern? I mean, what do you want to get out ahead of? Um, so I, when you actually see how our kids um, deal with their phones, um, right now we call our customers and we mail things to our customers. Uh, but that's not, my son doesn't even set up his voicemail on his phone. Uh, I ask him, please set it up. He said, no, I can tell you called. 
Um, he doesn't really want a message. Right. Um, if he wants to talk to me, he's going to send a text. So how are we going to get that information out to our customers? How are we going to get them? You know, the challenge is there's that intersection of regulations and requirements, but then there's also how people want to be talked to. Um, and there's also a lot of um, financial needs of that next generation. They have student loans, they need to save, they want to save, and we don't necessarily have the mechanisms to help them do that in an unclunky way. Right, I mean, with, with a compliance cloud hanging over you, how do you help someone and how do you communicate with them in a compliant way? In a compliant way, but the way they want to. You, know, um, you talk about Venmo as an app. Um, they want to transfer money with their phone. They don't want to have to sign into an online banking, walk around with their laptop. They were actually, very rarely do they use their laptops. Um, it's all about the device. So how do we actually deliver services through the device, but maintain the compliance requirements of giving you 25 pages of disclosure every time you want to do something? Right, uh, all this mo movement to the mobile device is really coming to a head. I mean, we've seen it coming, we've talked about it, and then it just seems like there is this slippery slope where it slid all the way towards you don't even have a desktop computer or laptop that you use now. So we're in a... I think we were caught a little unawares because right. we were happy with our online banking and with our laptop when we always have our desktop computers. I think I, even the difference... I, mean, I spend far too much time on email and that's, you know, my phone doesn't ring, but damn, that, you know, thing on my desk that right. just occupies all my time, they've moved beyond that. They don't use their email, but we're still trying to communicate with them that way. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we're also focused on is getting the unbanked into the banking system, um, creating new customers, and that's you know, that same kind of a challenge. How do you actually reach out to them in a mechanism and in a way that works for them? So around your area, Massachusetts, what, what's the unbanked population? What percentages do you know? Um, I don't know about the whole state, um, but one of the cities within our market area, the city of Lawrence, is actually 60%. 60 or 16? 60, 60. Percent um, unbanked. It a, it's, it's a gateway city. 60% um, of um, the people that live there speak Spanish as their, as their first language. Um, and um, in fact, about, on a weekly basis, about 15 million is cashed at check cashers. Wow. If you imagine that they're taking a cut of 10% off everything that's right. cashed, some people are making Instead a lot of money. Instead of actually making a deposit. Right. Yeah, but, in, a, in an environment where we're looking for deposits. Um, and, and all of those folks that are paying that high cost to get cash, um, they're mostly low to moderate income individuals. Right. So the people that can least afford paying a lot are paying the most. Um, but unfortunately, that city is also a cash-based society as well. A lot of business is done with cash. So how can you, using a device, then start bringing people into the banking system but allowing them to have access to their money in a cheaper way? Tell me a little bit about Reading Cooperative Bank. Oh, sure. Um, I like talking about Reading yeah, Cooperative give, Bank. Yeah, give me your... Give me so your, uh, so, so we're actually, we were founded in 1886. We're actually a mutual bank, so we're owned by our depositors um, and the community, so the community created us. In fact, cooperative banks um, were the early mutuals, obviously the 1800s, that was pretty early. Um, so in the 1800s, um, the Boston Globe at the time actually heralded the creation of the the type of organization at the state level as the emancipation of the middle class. Is that pretty cool? That yes. is. How large is your bank? Um, we're a half a billion. Half a billion. Um, eight branches from Andover to Burlington, if you know Massachusetts at all. Is is the uh, the tech challenge that's for every bank now, is that what you guys are seeing as well? Is it, is it the tech challenge that's really catching hold up there? Um, definitely technology. You're talking about um, the city of Boston. GE's just moved from Connecticut to Boston. Um, and there's really um, a lot of 
ingenuity and innovation that's actually happening in innovation districts around the city. There's a, and, and I work for a bank as well. Josh is a market agency, but I work for a bank out of Mississippi, and we have similar challenges, I'm sure, just being a bank, period. Uh, I guess the, the question I want to ask is, is have you have y'all rolled out a P2P payment platform? That's a lot of P's for uh, your phone. And do y'all do that yet? Or are you kind of waiting? Um, or? No, we did. Um, I want to say three years ago, our core redeveloped our online banking mm -hmm. tool to be a mobile and online. Um, you can deposit your checks. You can do P2P payments inside the bank and outside the bank. So it's a pretty robust platform. And the reason I bring this up for the listeners is this is a, you said a half a billion dollar bank. So you don't have to be the Wells Fargo's and the B of A's to have high tech services and high touch services. I mean, y'all are probably a super strong community bank. Super in, in strong. Your, yeah. In your, but from your age and... I can just tell by your excitement, you're you know probably a great community bank up there. And uh, for those banks that listen to this, and, and marketers as well as uh, bankers, you don't have to be a gigantic regional money center to have all the technologies today. It's 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 real, and it's it's trickled down to the the lower, uh, more community focused banks now. I believe so. Uh, it's it's not just a, a dream anymore. It's it's there and it's real now. So it's not just a, a dream. It is a reality, and it is easy and and available to community banks. So every community bank should have them. The one thing that I'll just point out quickly that I've observed is we're um, in our market about 95% of kids go to college and they go all over the country. We've actually seen that the savings in the checking accounts that we actually have with 18 year olds no longer migrate out of the bank when they go away to school. You're, you're holding them in into there's, the bank, in which fact, is the goal. In fact, we had 100% retention last year. And Fantastic. that's because there's no reason for them to leave. My son, who's a, who's a senior in college right now, um, went away to school in New York and he called me in June that year when he was staying down to do research, he said, I think I'm gonna finally have to leave Reading Cooperative Bank. And I said, no son, nope. um, download the app. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it, this transition, this slippery slope we talked about earlier is now we're in a generational gap. We're, we have a leadership generation and then we have a, a generation that's coming into the bank and we're trying to figure out how to think like those people, but they're app driven only. So we don't really even have to convince some of these people that you don't have to go to a large bank with millions of locations or thousands of locations would be more realistic because it's inherent. They use the product. It's a good a good mobile banking product, and we don't have to even convince them. We're spending a lot of time, I think, in the marketing realm trying to convince people to do something that maybe they already get. They already get it, as long as you have the app. But right. you're right, because it used to be whoever had the biggest ATM network won. Right. That's not the case now. It's feature functionality, making sure you're, that you're there. There's also an expectation with your app that you're constantly upgrading mm -hmm. to and enhancing. They're right. looking for those new innovations as soon as they're available to, to them. So this is Marketing Money Podcast, and um, we need to talk, I mean, we've talked generally about marketing, but what role does, does marketing play um, in Reading Cooperative Bank? Um, so, um, marketing plays a big role as far as talking about who we are. We've just talked about apps and millennials, etc. I think community banks are uniquely positioned with millennials because they want to be a part of something that's good. Um, and community banks, though we are banks and capitalists and we're here in the business of making money, um, we also do a lot of good work. So, um, especially as far as mutual banks, you're created by the community. We have a responsibility back towards the society that created us to keep um, the economy vibrant and the community <coughs> vibrant. So um, it is a win-win, but we've got to get the message out there. What, um, what questions should a bank CEO ask their marketing director every day? Oh, wow. What shouldn't Every they? What shouldn't day? they ask them? <laughs> Every single day, um, 
I really don't know. <laughs> it's a different question every single day. It's probably driven by whatever is on the front page of the newspaper. Um, how are we doing as it relates to that topic? One, are, are you reading? Are you reading the news? And two, are you reacting to the news? <laughs> right. Uh, and that is one thing that I do for, um, for, for all of my team is I encourage them that they need to stay current. Um, it can't be, you know, life is really all-encompassing with your families, um, and we do believe in work-life balance, um, but you got to keep current and know what's going on, and that's really why you need to come to places like this. Absolutely. Well, that was a good, uh, good closeout, I think, to yes. why we need to be at a place like this. So, Julie from Redding Cooperative Bank up near Boston, Massachusetts, you want to close us out here, give us a little, you know, why you should be here and... Um, sure, you should be here because all the best community banks are here. Absolutely. I could, could not have uh, said it better. Thank you and so much. And we learn from each other. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the Marketing Money Podcast, and uh, have a great conference. Have a great day. Thank you. Hey, check out ABABankMarketing.com, your source for news and updates in bank marketing, ABABankMarketing.com. Follow ABA Bank Marketing on Twitter at ABA Bank MKTG. That's A B A B A N K M K T G with the at sign in front to follow anything on Twitter to do with ABA Bank Marketing. Welcome back to the Marketing Money Show, Marketing Money Podcast, Marketing Money, whatever you want to call it. We are here at multimedia the multimedia experience. Yeah, the experience. We're here at the ABA National Conference in Nashville, Tennessee, and we have the one, the only Andy Bush. That is I. Andy. Master of all I see somewhat. But <laughs> give no, us your, I'm really, it's a pleasure to be here, guys. Yeah, give us your quick. So, for the listeners, because this is a, a bank marketing base, tell us about yourself, who you are, real. You got, you got tell three us about minutes. Engage. Run yeah, with it. Yeah. Sure. So, I'm a political economist based out of Chicago. I've worked in the financial sector for almost all of my career. Uh, I am a guy who people hire to talk about the intersection of politics and money. And gosh, I think there's a lot of need for that nowadays. I'm probably one of the few people that A, have a, read the Dodd Frank bill. That was really. Page Turner. Did you but finish the, last night? About I did. 10 and, and the Affordable Care Act. And I've got the <laughs> permanent emotional scars to show uh, from that. But no, seriously, I mean, these politicians, hardly anybody reads their policies. And that's what I do. I go through their tax reform, their economic reform, what they're trying to accomplish, and really give that picture to people in a nonpartisan, objective way. And I think that's, it's just a lot of fun. I get to meet a lot of great people. I, I have my own talk show, uh, Engage with Andy Bush on iTunes. Uh, but I write research. You can go to andrewbush.com. I write about the political economy, so I've been doing it for a long time. So Andy, everybody's worried right now. I don't know anybody that's just elated with the political landscape in front of us. Um, just top line, what 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 repercussions are, are we looking at? You don't have to be political and go towards one candidate getting elected or the other, but kind of what is the road in front of us now? Does that go one way or the other? Yeah, I would say this. Um, what I think a lot of people are concerned, but they have a lot of uncertainty out there. They're a lot of like acid building up in their stomachs. And because there is so much uncertainty about the future of what's happening in the economy, they look at these candidates and they just don't hear what they're saying as far as the future and solutions to the problems that we have. I will tell you I'm an optimist. I'm a realist optimist. In other words, you have to know what the problems are and then you can see what the solutions are. And they're there. And I think we're at a point in our country where we will get to those solutions because they're coming and they're, we need them. Our central bank is at the limits of what they can do to stimulate the economy. Um, they're telling us they're not going to do anymore. And we need action out of DC on tax reform and economic reform. And it's there and it's coming. And we're in a scenario that no matter the candidate, 
no, or no matter the candidate who is elected, the system will force us to um, observe it and, and make some changes, right? I think so. I, I, you know, the thing is, is that the changes that are needed are not easy, and that's why they haven't been done. So are we at a crisis point? I don't think so yet. We've got a lot of problems with debt and deficit that are going to rack up really quickly and limit our choices if we don't start moving forward on them. But I think that's where we're at. And I think that's why um, we'll see people in the House, we'll see people in the Senate and the presidency come together and try to solve some of these really key issues. So pointed question, do you think the voter, the American voter, is informed enough to make the right decisions to put the people in place to address these issues. I think the American voter is reflecting what they're feeling. And they're feeling just left out of this recovery. Um, middle income earners have not really seen their wages go up. And that's why they're looking for outsiders. That's the rise of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And they're emblematic of that feeling in that vote. Uh, the loser in this election is going to get 42 million votes. So whatever you think of that candidate, he's still going to garner a lot of, or her, a lot of votes. So. <laughs> Half of I, I, America is into somebody. Yeah, and, and that's what I would say. You know, a lot of people think, oh, Americans are uninformed, they're dumb, they don't study the politics, whatever. That may be true, but they're smart enough to know that they feel something's wrong and something's got to get done about it, and they don't like the choices of what's been presented for them. That's why they went outside the system to some extent. So, question to bring it back to the banking industry. You talked high-level uh, I guess it was a week ago the CFPB had a, uh, a ruling against it. And as you being the only person in America that's read Dodd-Frank all the way through, uh, how do you think the impact, I, I know there's the RESPA part of it, but take that out and let's just talk about, because your average is RESPA, what is that? But let's talk about the CFPB. Right. What is the impact of that ruling? I, it may go to the, it may go to a, another court and go up to the Supreme Court, but I think it was the D.C. Court of Appeals. Where yeah, it, it was appellate. Yeah, the appellate two, court. Two to one, so but. my question on that is, what do you think the impact of that ruling is? Because it, it, it took a lot of the authority like way out of it from the, the ruling. The way I yeah, at it. I think what's important about the CFPB was that um, it was such a standalone agency, and it's funded outside of Congress, and and that's just not the way that we do things. The, Congress has the purse strings, and that's how it's supposed to work as an offset to executive power to some extent. And when you take that away, all of a sudden those become fiefdoms that make decisions that have no accountability. And that's what the constitutional ruling was. They didn't feel that it had enough accountability to the president. And so they, instead of having the sole director, they wanted to have, I believe, more now of a board or so. And I think it's the step in the right direction of accountability for the CFPB. Um, they need to have that because, as we know, absolute power corrupts absolutely, whether it's in the United States or in Russia. And so that's that's the thing that I really, I think many, many people did not like about the structure of CFPB. So it's starting to take us down a path of reform, which we need to have. And I think we'll have more reform coming um, on the economic side, the political side, uh, regulatory side, specifically for banking. And I think that's a great sign. That was, uh, it was an interesting ruling because they also turned back the, the fine that was levied on them, I believe. Yes. And so the, it was a a monetary, if you want to call it, ruling, as well as a political policy ruling, which was interesting that a court did that because it was almost like they told Congress what they should have done when they created it. Uh, and I believe the uh, defendant in the case was it? What was the name of it? it was the uh, the mortgage company? It was an ac um, it was an acronym. It was three it, letters. P something. Yeah, I forget who it was. But uh, um, 
Uh, they had asked to repeal the Dodd-Frank. Remember, they asked yeah. the court to repeal Dodd-Frank in their ruling, which I thought was a little bit of a grab yeah, right. uh, a request. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a little bit of a reach. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, the thing is, what's great about it is we have not seen any of this regulatory rollback at all. It's always been full, you know, guns shooting ahead. This is the first step towards a more meaningful, thoughtful regulatory program and system, which we need as a country. It's, it, you know, like so many things, you go back to the dot-com bubble burst, we went crazy to the, to the, to the one side of over-regulating, um, and, and that caused a lot of CEOs a lot of angst over having to sign off on their financial documents. But now it's the same thing with banks, and banks are so crazily capitalized right now. They're overcapitalized. They're super safe. And the problem is, is that you don't have any new banks being formed because of the compliance and the re regulatory cost of that. So now, down at the local level, you're not getting the lending and the liquidity that you need. Well, so I think it's great to see that that there is a dialogue, that we can, it is not the government handing down um, with an iron fist or, or whatever that might be, is that em the business owner, the banker can feel empowered to go back and actually challenge some of this, that it could be, I guess we haven't determined if it's unconstitutional, but that it is not exactly correct. Yeah. And, and so we can begin to make a dialogue, not just, well, I have to accept whatever's been handed to me, it could actually be unfair. and. And we could, we're not going to get Dodd-Frank repealed, but no. But we can ask. Right. Well, you're not going to get it repealed. You're going to, what you need is meaningful reform. And whether it's Dodd-Frank or the Affordable Care Act, both of those things need to be repealed. The Affordable Care Act may collapse if they don't repeal, or not repeal it, but reform it. You'll never repeal it because you won't control both houses of Congress and the presidency. So it's really difficult to get rid of it. And it's the same thing with Dodd-Frank. But you can modify it. You can make it better. Um, I know that upsets a lot of people on the far right because they don't like having big government, and I totally understand that. But you have to be a realist and understand that you got to take the steps that you can, and that is to, to make whatever you know mess that you think you have better. So tell me this. Uh, tell the listeners, Hillary Clinton wins. What's something that, and just be a predicting here, you're not held to this, obviously, disclaimer, throw it out. <laughs> what's one thing that happens that most people wouldn't expect, and Donald Trump wins, what's one thing that, happens that most people don't Positive expect. Positive or negative? Either way. Just, <laughs> what, well, I think with Clinton, I think she's not nearly as much of a, a, a Bernie Sanders candidate as people thought she was. Um, I think she's a centrist, and I think she'll compromise. I'm not the only person that thinks that. Even Steve Moore has said, because I've interviewed him on stage in front of a big conference, he thought Hillary Clinton would compromise. So I think that's that'll be the surprise. And I'll tell you why I think that. This is really cool. So when we had the release of the Trump video with Billy Bush, right, that happened Friday, right? Now, Saturday and Sunday, Trump and Pence were supposed to go campaign with uh, Paul Ryan up in his district, right? The, the release of that, they had that information for some time, so they were timing it pretty well. Now, they could have released it after uh, Ryan had campaigned with those and, guys. And smashed all and of them. Got all of them and embarrassed Ryan. But that didn't happen. So that tells me that the Clintons know that, that they needed to cut him some slack. Because they're maybe bone. working with him for four years. That's right. Yeah. Or at least two, for yeah. sure. 
And, and uh, so when you see something like that, right, it, it tells you that, that they're thinking beyond just what's happening right now, that they expect to be president. Um, she does. And I, I would say that's hopeful for the future as far as getting things done, because we got to get things done. As far as Trump goes, the thing that I would say with Trump is that within his policies, on his tax reform policies, people don't talk about him. There's two things that are awesome in there. One is a one-time re uh, tax on repatriated earnings doesn't sound too sexy until you look at there's 2.1 trillion dollars sitting offshore that could come back to the United bring States that back in. right one time tax at 10% and then it's gone right if you bring it all back now it's taxed at 35% every year so you'd never do it right so that creates an investable pool of capital happy days full expensing which is another part of what Trump has is awesome because it allows companies to fully expense a plant and equipment, whatever they want to do in the year that they buy it. So basically, you create an investable pool of capital and you give it something to do. You incent it to do something you here in the United States. You don't have to depreciate States. over time. And That's right. Like if you buy a plant, it's five years depreciation. Unlike if you hire a new employee, that comes right off the bottom line. Right, yeah. So just make it even. That is really, really good. So you might be surprised if, when, if they can pass that on tax reform, you will get much stronger growth because of that. But so, we're too busy talking about tapes and right. uh, emails, right? Twitter tapes and emails. And 3 a.m. and yeah. beauty queen models. And yeah. it's unfortunate, right? I mean, I, I, as a political economist, I really try to be objective with these things. And I see certain things that Clinton tries to do on the economic side. Um, some of the things I do like with maybe with solar panels, maybe not the way that she does them. Some of the infrastructure stuff. Yeah, I like that. And some with Trump, I like the stuff that he does on the tax reform side. But, but neither one of them talks about it during the debates. And it's like We've it drives We've never been able crazy. to get to the issues no. of no. anything. It's so, sad. It's really so we, sad. So we're going to close out this session. But real quick, prediction, are you Clinton and Republicans hold the House and Congress or in, in the Senate? Or is that because that's where kind of I'll just full disclosure, I, I think Clinton will win. And I think right. that the Republicans are barely going to hold on. But they're going to have eight, nine seats in the House and two or three, four in the Senate, and that'll be that'll be it. But yeah. give me give me your rundown I, on it. I would say for the markets, what they really would like to have is a gridlock Congress in the sense of having a president from one party and Congress from another. And I think we're setting it up that way. I think the polls are showing Hillary Clinton will win. Um, the House is very likely to stay Republican. They'll probably lose some seats, but not that many. And the Senate's going to be very, very close. But I think... I would say it stays Republican by maybe one vote. Uh, and if that's the case, then you'll have to have compromise, but you'll also have uh, the role of the Senate be really important for advising consent on Supreme Court, but also the head of, head of the CFPB, the head of SEC, the head of CFTC, and all the agencies. And that's super important. So I think that's the best scenario we can look for out of this election. Fantastic. Right. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here. Um, join Andy. Yeah. T t give us your plug. Give us your sign off. Go ahead. So, so uh, first, I'm speaking tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, which will be great. But for the listeners, I'm at andrewbush.com. That's Bush spelled like the beer, not the president. And you can find me at Twitter at A-B-U-S-C-H. And my, um, my, my iTunes show is Engage with Andy Bush. Fantastic. Andy. Check him out. Absolutely. Thanks for being on Marketing Money Podcast. You bet.
views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual participants and do not reflect the official policy or position of any financial institution or agency, Renaissance Corporation, Renaissance Bank and its affiliates, or the Mavis Agency. For more information, please visit marketingmoneypodcast.com.